So, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Christian preacher walk into a podcast. It sounds like a joke, but it's really a friendship. I am Omar Shaheed, Imam at Masjid As-Salam. And I am Rabbi Jonathan Case from Beth Shalom Synagogue. And I am Reverend Ellen Fowler-Skidmore of Forest Lake Presbyterian Church. All of us gathered today in Columbia, South Carolina, to welcome you to our podcast, Abraham's Table. Today we share our experiences and the teachings of our faiths about day-to-day living and the spiritual disciplines that feed and shape our faith. As Muslims, Jews, and Christians, how does what we believe shape our daily lives? What are the practices taught by our respective faiths? What does a faithful Muslim, Jewish, or Christian life look like on a day-to-day basis? Come with us to sit together at Abraham's table. I had a teacher in London. His name was Rabbi Lionel Blue. And he once looked at us, smirked, and then said, do you know why a lot of people don't go to synagogue? And we all kind of looked at him with this glazed look on our eyes, knowing well that we should not give an answer. And he said, people don't come because they're afraid it will work. (laughs) (laughs) And that's always stayed with me because we all were gathered here today for the purpose of talking about our inner and outer spiritual lives. And I wonder whether or not when we put that out into the universe and we put the question out, God, are you with me? If God responds to us, whether we jump out of our skin and say, well, um, that's okay. I really didn't want to talk to you anyway. I've got something else to do. Can I call you back in a little while? I think that we're all hungering and searching for the ineffable to be touched by and to touch God. And at the same time, fearful that we might actually have an incident where we so connect with God that it may in fact so change us, our character, our lives forever, that the encounter could be intimidating and frightening. Yes, I I, uh, would like to say that upon what works in terms of religious principles, religious uh, beliefs, and religious practices, for Islam, we have five essentials of practices. And they are, one, a testimony every day, at least sometimes, that God is one and Muhammad is his servant and his messenger. The second one is prayer, the daily prayers that we pray, which are five daily prayers, minimum. The third one is charity, a zakat, and it is uh, a tax, but also there's sadaqah connected with it, that understanding, sadaqah, uh, which is voluntary uh, charity. Also, there is the fasting, Saum Ramadan, the fasting in the month of Ramadan, 
which for us will be, again, this year, around April the 23rd. It comes in at sunset. You know, our day starts at sunset. You're familiar Just with like it. in the Jewish community, yeah. <laughs> yes. It, it's also the, the Hajj, or the pilgrimage to Mecca, which uh, we strive to make at least once in our lifetime. I have had the opportunity to visit Mecca uh, 1987, uh, and my family and I. We, of course, I stayed in Saudi Arabia also for about nine months, uh, ten months in a study program for America's imam law, American imams, okay? Imams from America. Well, Stop that, right that now. makes me, that gives me all kinds of questions. The first one I have is when you say testimony, I know what that means in a Christian context. And more often than not, it means witnessing to somebody else, telling my faith story. What does testimony mean in the Muslim frame? It is a, it is a, a saying, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. I witness that there's nothing worthy of worship except the one God, Allah. And Muhammad is his servant and his messenger, meaning Muhammad is not God. We don't worship Muhammad. We don't worship any human being. We worship only God. So a testimony is what I, as a faithful Muslim, say every day in my prayer? Or do I have have to say it to somebody else? Or it's not? Someone will hear you say it. Uh, If they're around you, they're going to hear you say it at some point during that day if they're around you long enough. Is it a part of your the five daily prayers? Yes, yes. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's a part of the, that's the first principle outside of the prayers, you know. Okay. But we, you would hear it if you're in a Muslim country, you would hear it in the call to prayer. Okay. Yeah, that. But me personally, uh, as an individual, someone should hear me say that. That's a testimony mm-hmm. uh, that we practice. It's, it's the first principle of, of uh of our practices. And the five daily prayers, tell me, they're tied, I know, sun up and sun down. Before, before sunrise. Before, before sunrise. the sun rises. Then after the sun passes, the zenith. Give you a better picture, right now it comes in around 6 o'clock okay. in the morning, okay, 6 a.m. The next one will come in maybe around 12.40. And the next one will come in around three something, three, a little bit before four. The next one comes in maybe around 5.30, and the last one comes in around uh, after six. Wow. About an hour or so. So they're regulated like that, and uh, it really gives us a time to break away from what we're doing and concentrate on our Communication with God is, is the communication. And, it, and at every one of those prayer intervals, you pull out your rug and you kneel. Is that- if, or it could be a tower, or it could be, okay. you know, a clean area. And I was told, uh, Rabbi Jonathan, I was told by another rabbi that you ought to have a similar practice of so many prayers a day. Yeah, in fact, we do. Uh, we have three prayers services each day, mm-hmm. one that is in the morning right after the sun rises, one that comes some point after the midpoint of the afternoon, okay. and one that comes right after the sun has set. So okay. you, you, you said the morning one comes after the sun has After risen. the sun has okay. risen. So I always come before. 
Okay, in Islam. Okay. So do similar. Do you lead those prayers, or does everybody do their own prayers? A person can pray by themselves, but one fish living in an ocean by themselves doesn't live for very long, <laughs> and so therefore. It's important that we find company that reinforces our prayer and that at the same time we do the same for them. So Judaism tries to uh, require that for public prayer there be at least 10 adults present that can echo off each other, listen to each other's prayers, and validate the prayers that they utter to heaven. So it is with us in, in, in Islam, we have, to, uh, we have to make that prayer individually. Or it can be, it should, uh, it's a group prayer, it's a congregation of prayer. So we'll get up some time and go to the mosque. Really, should, uh, the mosque should be there for all five prayers. And in the congregation prayer, congregational prayer, it's, uh, it consists of three. Three can make that. But really, if not, you're supposed to pray at home, but you're not supposed to pray by yourself. You're supposed to pray with the family. So it can be done individually. You know, in the family setting or in the collective uh, community setting. Yeah, more, bl- a, more blessings from the community, as it said. Yeah. There's a kind of almost dissonance between pl- praying individually yes. and as a community. Yes. For people who are really sp- strongly wanting to touch God, feel yes. spiritually connected, yes. praying individually can be a very, very compelling and powerful experience. Mm-hmm. Whereas, Praying in a community sometimes can be distracting. Somebody's praying off-key, some, somebody's doing something else, and so you're looking with the corner of your eye over at them. So there's a dissonance so that while we look for community to reinforce mm-hmm. what we're doing, at the same time, individual prayer also has this power and, and compulsion, inner compulsion. Now, you mentioned something very key right there in the collective prayer there's the imam or the leader. So if there are two or three, you have to select one person to lead that prayer. Uh, so we all won't be praying loud at the same time or anything like that. That leader will be reciting the prayer and leading the prayer. Now, after we finish the obligatory prayer, then you make your own private prayer, which is called dua, uh, supplication, individual supplication. Hmm. After you finish the main prayer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very similar in Judaism. When when ten adults get together to pray, one of them will ultimately lead the prayer, and they'll be kind of tracking everybody to keep basically in the same rhythm and cadence and basically on the same page, but everyone individually will be nonetheless praying by themselves and then being brought together at these pivotal moments so that they can join together in certain communal prayers that rise hopefully with more force, to God's ears. You know, there's such a wide variety of experience in the Christian tradition. I'm uh, just struggling with where to begin. I think um, y'all make the Presbyterians look pretty lax. Um, I, I expect and I ask and I pray and I hope that my people are praying, but there are not set hours in the Reformed tradition. Now, in the... Roman Catholic tradition, there's a long-standing tradition of praying together on the hours. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't know if I can admit this on a podcast or not, but as a Presbyterian pastor, I go stay 
pretty much annually with a Roman Catholic mm-hmm. monastery down in Monk's Corner, Mepkin Abbey. And one of the things that is so vastly different from my own experience as a Presbyterian is to pray the hours with the monks. And so the holiest part of that week is there are two parts of that. One is that they keep silence, which is um, near and dear to my soul and one of the spiritual disciplines, I would add. And then the other is this prayer of the hours. So before the sun comes up, they actually start at three. I usually start with them at six. Um, I did three one time, and I couldn't stay awake for the midday prayer. So I, they start without me, and then I jump in at about six. And you go all day, and the last one is about eight o'clock. And at the last um, prayer, you they end actually with a at Mepkin anyway by uh, spraying water from the baptismal font, which for as a Presbyterian is foreign to me, but but not so foreign because I understand it's a reminder before I go to sleep of my baptism in Christ. So that the hours have come and gone. They're much more well-practiced in the Roman Catholic tradition, particularly the monastic tradition. Our folks, um, I think that is one of the disciplines that I think we need to reclaim and that would benefit us to have some more definite instruction on when and where and how. I remember in a dialogue, an interfaith discussion, that the Catholic um, priest mm-hmm. said that they have six prayers or something like that a day that they pray. But I I, right. the beauty of it was that, was that we have uh, in common prayer. Even though we pray differently, we have in common Prayer, you know, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, that's a connection for us. You know, can I tell you, one of the, we are, the three of us have been in interfaith dialogue a lot, but a, a couple of years ago, um, Imam came and brought members of his congregation, and we had members of my congregation, so we had a just a learning about Islam, because I, I think our congregation uh, knows the Jewish tradition so much better. There's so much we don't know about the Muslim tradition so they, they came, and I don't know that you remember this, but this was holy ground for me. At the end of the of our session, the sun was going down, and the whole group, now most of it men, needed a place to pray. So we went up to the church parlor, and, and they yes. brought their rugs. They did their prayer. So I'm sitting as an observer. I asked if I could just listen. I sat in the hall and listened, and... Down the hall from one way came the prayers of the my friends from Masjid As-Salam, and floating up from the other direction were the words from the choir, our mm-hmm. church choir that was practicing their anthem from Sunday. And I thought, somewhere right here in the middle of the hall is going to be the coming of the kingdom, that that was a, just a really wonderful and holy piece. It reminded me also of, in the traditions of Islam, that the... Christians uh, came to visit Muhammad in Medina, and uh, it was time for them to have their services, and he told them, use the mosque. Wow. Yeah, use the mosque. So we have a connection there, uh, the beauty of that, okay? Mm-hmm. But prayers for us, they, 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 they're situated in such a, such a time that they allow us to break away from what we're engaged in and you know, it is interesting. The other thing that all of us have in common is this combination of ritualized or ancient prayers and personal prayer. 
that the, the, it's it's not an either or. It's got to be a both and. And at different points in our lives, uh, personal prayer or corporate prayer might mm-hmm. be helpful. In our worship, every Sunday, there's corporate prayer, prayers that we read together, that we say together, the Lord's Prayer in the Christian tradition, the one that Christ taught us to pray when we are together saying our Father. And so those prayers that we know, and yet I think that part of the Reformers' reaction against the Roman Catholic tradition was that those ancient prayers became so ritual that people could say them with no meaning. And um, that's always a tension. But both are required. It's not either or. It's both and. You bring up a couple of interesting points there. First of all, the difference between holy time and holy space, that which of the two is greater. And it may well be that the thing that we disregard the most often is holy time. We don't make sacred moments of time where we slot into those moments as opposed to the space which we tend to venerate. This is this is a holy place, only certain things can happen here. When any space can be transformed in time by what we do in that space to make it holy because of the time that we've invested in it. And, and the second issue kind of divorced from that is you briefly mentioned, Ellen, the idea of silence when you went to the monastery. And, and silence, too, is a, a very powerful part of prayer because it's not only silence of the mouth. It's also silence of the, of the mind, which jumps around like a kangaroo sometimes and just shutting it down and allowing ourselves to connect with God. This is wonderful prayer that we have that we, interestingly enough, we never say out loud. Um, it's always said quietly before we begin praying. Um, and by the way, in Judaism, we don't use the word pray. My understanding of the word prayer comes from the French prier, which means to beg. So we tend to use the Yiddish word, which is related to divine. We call it daven because it's far more than asking for things, prayer. Mm-hmm. It's receiving, and it's also something truly magnificent, which is giving thanks. But the prayer that I was going to refer to, saying that I just wasn't going to refer to prayer as prayer, now I'm just calling it prayer, <laughs> is, my God, the soul that you have invested me, invested in me is pure. You breathed it into me. And so that that whole prayer harkens back to Adam in the Garden of Eden when this inanimate creature was animated by the breath of God, by the breath of divinity. And that's the same breath that we breathe in and out every day. Yes, We're breathing in and out God's Spirit with every breath that we take. And that's one of the first prayers that we utter in the morning. So, wait a minute. I want to make sure I understand. So that what you just said is is a private prayer that faithful Jews make before they attune to the divine. So can you say the prayer again? Before we, words? before we publicly pray, yeah. We say, my God, the soul that you had invested in me is pure. You breathed it into me. And it continues on to say, and one day you will take the breath from me and return to you. In, in Islam, we use the term solat, and uh, solat, solat means connection. And that's what we do. We, we make a connection with our Creator. And in that same vein, uh, we say the beginning, Allahu Akbar, God is greater than anything we have on our mind, anything that exists. 
it works. I'm going back to what you said at the beginning. <laughs> it works. Yeah, it helps us. But there's a Friday prayer now that takes the pray that takes the place of the noon prayer. It takes the place of the noon prayer, and it's called uh, Juma. But it's called Juma, and it consists of a sermon in two parts, and it consists of uh, two sections of prayer, and that's the congregation on Friday. We are to leave off business and traffic. Come to the remembrance of God, leave off business and traffic. And we'll go to the nearest mosque. We'll gather there for a short sermon, praising God, uplifting God, and then reminding us of our community obligation. And then we'll disperse back into the earth, if God says, uh, seeking his bounties. So we don't have a Sabbath, per se, because every day for us is seen. But that's a Friday prayer midday. It's around midday. But you don't have a day set aside for particular worship. There's no no equivalent to a Sunday or a Sabbath. Every day is God's day for us. But you will find that Friday uh, has become a, a, a focus for people to leave off. Uh, the business and traffic of what they're engaged in. And, but we're told in the Quran, then disperse back into the earth, seeking the, bount- seeking the bounties of God. So, but always keep God in remembrance of what we're pursuing. Keep that uppermost. Up so is that more of a, an American phenomenon where Friday is a day that is separate or? No, oh. it, it is, it is uh, given that time, uh, and that's been set from the beginning. Uh, rather that instead of that noon prayer, which consists of four sections, then the sermon is two parts, and then the prayer, two sections, which takes the place of that. Okay. How, what percentage of your people are able to leave work or family and come midday to worship? And is that something you expect everybody to be there for? Yes, and uh, we have some concerns with the uh, children, you know, because they're in school, public schools and mm-hmm. things like that. So that, that's not a, a situation that they can attend to all the time. On the college, at the universities, they, they, they give them space. They provide space. Jobs, you know, it's beautiful. The thing about uh, living in America where we have a Christian majority, <laughs> most of the uh, employers will respect that. So we, if we take that time, that hour, hour and a half, uh, really consists of about an hour, then you, you talk with your employer, you get that uh, in terms of uh, something that they will uh, support and they respect. And so the vast majority of us will go someplace close and do that. Well, that does bring us to both Jonathan, your and my traditions are supposed to set aside all days belong to God, and also there is supposed to be a Lord's Day, a day that on which we are to do other things that don't happen during the week that's set aside. So in our tradition, it's, it's supposed to be Sunday. It's supposed to be a Sabbath. It um, traditionally should include corporate worship, private prayer, and it's supposed to be a time of rest and recreation. Mm where that which causes our soul to soar, that which heals us, that which 
brings us joy, the, the contemplation of beauty, that those things are what's supposed to fill our Sabbath, mm. as well as the study of Scripture and worship together. Now, I was thinking about Sabbath, because I've done a fair amount of reading about it in the Jewish tradition, because I think it's such a, an amazing foundation for the Christian tradition of Sabbath. But I remember an old saying, correct me where I err, Jews don't keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath keeps the Jews. Yeah, that's an old saying by a fellow by the name of Ahad Ha'am who said that. And the reason he said it is because when everybody gathers together to rest and to pray and to read and to contemplate and to learn on a, on a single day, it tends to be the glue that binds a community together as in, in knit in one fabric. So that's, I think, what he meant by that statement. And it tends to have that power to it, too. We have a service on Friday evening, which is very short. Just like in the Muslim tradition, when the sun goes down, it's a new day. So when the sun goes down on Friday, it becomes the Sabbath. And it's a very short service because we send people home to light candles, to have a festive meal, to enjoy each other's company, to sing, to not put on the idiot box or whatever the modern equivalent of that is with a, with a, with a cell phone or, or games, and just be together to look in each other's eyes and to love one another and to learn how to talk to one another because we forget how to do that during the week. And then Saturday is a time given to reflection and prayer and learning. We have about a three-hour service on Saturday. And after the three-hour service, we have a lunch where everyone sits down. We break bread, and that takes about an hour. And then after that, we study for about another hour ancient texts. Um, so it's really a replete day where we try to reclaim our soul, try to reclaim what we lose. I mean, what you said, Imam, was so true about coming together and then going back into the world. But unless we come together, we're going out into the world the same as we always have throughout our entire life, unless we take time to reflect, heal, ask questions of ourselves that we otherwise would avoid, allow ourselves to be asked questions that we don't want to be asked, and learn things that otherwise would remain closed to us. One of the things that, that I have begun to uh, notice is that if we practice what we have and what we claim, I can see the world being a better world. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> because we have so much, and we have so much that's rich and so much in common. Uh, the breakaways, the thinking on God and then thinking on your neighbor and thinking on you, that's very, very important. And I think we've gotten away from that. We, we were away from that, and I think that's why I believe and trust that what the Quran says, that if we would uh, encourage each other to practice what we claim, then God will reward all of us, and we should have no fear, nor shall we grieve. Won't yeah. fear losing, and won't grieve over what we lost. And it all boils down to hope, doesn't it? I mean, our faiths all Pardon encourage God. us yes. to have hope yes. rather than despair, you know, yes. the— what is the expression? Life is short, brutish, and nasty. Yeah. And, and our faiths combine to say, no, it's not short, brutish, and nasty. It's hopeful. hopeful. It's positive. It's, it's seeing the other side of what can possibly become yeah. reality, yeah. light, beauty, joy, forgiveness. That, that's something that, the, that, that we have in our yeah. I think it's motto in the state, isn't it? When I breathe, I hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> While I breathe, I hope. Yeah, I, I'm sitting here thinking, and Omar said it, to be in a, in a nation that has a Christian majority, which has been slipping, uh, that 
what is a Christian majority and what do we mean by that? But this whole pandemic, I don't know about your congregations, but my folks, I have a number of folks who, I have some folks who don't come because they're very anxious about health and COVID. I have a number of other people who, because we have used the technology to live stream, now love to sit in their pajamas with their coffee. So I I don't see my people flocking back. Excuse me for laughing because (laughs) my sister, who's a Christian, one of my sisters, I was talking to her the other day uh, while it was early in uh, the latter part of last year. She said, you know, uh, they're thinking about going, opening up the church. She said, but I, I've gotten so comfortable just yes. getting up, putting on my pajamas and just That's drinking right. coffee and, That's right. and listening to the sermon on the TV. We had a cartoon down in our workroom that, was, that said, what the preacher thinks we're doing on Sunday, and it had a family in their Sunday best with their hands up in the air watching on TV and looking very holy and worshipful. And then the other side of it was what we know we really do on Sunday. And it was a woman in mismatched pajamas laying in an unmade bed holding on to her phone with a cup of coffee spilling <laughs> on everything. So um, that, that whole idea, I, I think for the Christian tradition, we really are coming up on a decision on a corner. Who are we? Mm-hmm. And and will we make both time and holy space to do something that realigns us or helps us come back and touch the ground that gives us life, that helps us approach God in prayer? Mm-hmm. Or will we continue to be guided by what is most important to me? I've had so many conversations with had an older man coming to my office a couple of years ago, furious that they were having soccer games on Sunday mornings on Polo Road. He said, I think we should boycott. I think we should do this, that, and the other. He was furious. And I told him, yeah, Richland County might tilt. There's so many people on that field out there, you know, that all those families, Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. I said, now, now you know what it feels like to be Jewish, <laughs> right? <laughs> Everything's planned when you got worship, and I think that ship has sailed. And and there's an old author that I like who wrote in the 1980s that the time is coming when Christians in this country will have to decide if we are Christians by convention or Christians by conviction. Mm. And I think that's what's happened, is we've got to decide if we're going to create the Lord's Day again, if we're going to reclaim it for worship, for study, for community, for mm-hmm. joy. I, I'm not in charge of that part, but that's what I'm praying for. Well, I think we're all a challenge. Um, and I was reading something in the Quran. Now, uh, I was going to ask, ask about it, Rabbi, that when Moses and his people were in under this particular Pharaoh who was oppressing them, something to the effect that they couldn't go to the mosque or the synagogue, I'm sorry, and they were told to make, in the Quran, they say they were told to make their homes a kibla, a place of prayer, a place of, uh, make their homes like the synagogue, a, a place of pray and pray in their homes and orientate themselves in a direction within their homes, uh, which helped us when the uh, pandemic started, uh, you know, the focus back on since we couldn't get to the mosque, pray at home, make sure home was established away. Cause of that, Many uh, of our members have talked about an increase in faith because they were able to do some things at home that they were not able to do in the past when they had to go out and they were 
not able to be with each other. I was going to ask you about that. I think that's beautiful. Um, that passage is not found in the Bible, mm-hmm. but it's very familiar to me what you're saying because 2,000 years ago, when the Second Temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year, approximately the year 70, there was one man who escaped the burning embers of the temple in Jerusalem. And since there's not been a temple since, how was Judaism going to survive? How was Judaism going to live in an environment where the cultic worship in the temple no longer existed? And he said a few things, but one of the most salient, important comments that he made was that from now on, your table is your altar. Mm. You sit around your table and you eat and you bless God, and that becomes your altar. And if you think about in the context of what you said about the family gathering around the table, which is now transformed into an altar, Mm. and you're eating and you're talking God and you're thanking God for the food that you're eating and you're you're looking into each other's eyes, thank God. Thank God. And so that that brings me back to what uh, Reverend Ellen was saying about, I know when I was growing up, like I told you before, you know, I'm a convert to, to Islam. We didn't do certain things on Sunday. <laughs> right. You could cut the grass in the back, but not in the front. You didn't have no <laughs> I might NFL and all that on Sunday, you know, That's and, right. and things of that nature. So, uh, But my mother always taught me that Christianity was a way of life, a way of living. That's what she— It's supposed to be. And I think the challenge is there for us to make that— It is supposed uh, to be. Our religion's reality. Yeah. For us all. You know, the the only other discipline, I don't know how much more time we've got, but that, that we haven't talked about that I assume is common to all of us is this commitment to read and study our holy texts. And um, in my experience, that was really the top spiritual discipline when I was thinking about it, that, that of course, the, the Jewish Bible we use, we had claim as our first covenant and, and add to that the new covenant, the second covenant, but that my experience is that when people create time and space to actually be in contact with those primary documents, mm-hmm. reading Scripture for themselves, struggling with it with themselves, mm-hmm. sitting with others to do, that that's the transformative piece, that God works through the living Word of Scripture to begin to change us, and then some of the other disciplines begin to be easier. But that's, that's a, for some people, feels Foreboding because what parts of scripture are now over 3,500 years old? You don't read it like a magazine. It's you have to take into account the culture that it takes study and translation. And so I worry that the Christians have not spent enough time doing that. Can I inject Ramadan that we talked about is one of the five uh, practices that's coming up, uh, as I said before, in April mm-hmm. of this year of 2022, and it is a time when we take in a light breakfast before the sun rises, and we go all day without eating or drinking anything. You have to meet the the criteria. Now, we go all day without eating, drinking, any kind of conjugal relations with our wives. I didn't mention girlfriends. That should be automatic, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and also, during this time, uh, we eat at sunset. Sun, uh, before sunrise, is called suhur. It's a light breakfast. But at sunset, it is called iftar, which is fast breaking. That's breakfast for us. 
at whenever the sun sets. We are to, along with the fasting and abstaining, we're to continue to work our jobs, but we also are to engage in more spiritual activities. We eat at sunset, and then we have prayers at night. They're called Tarawih uh, prayer. They are congregational prayers that are not obligatory. They're highly recommended. But we try to recite a portion of the Quran. The leader who's leading the prayers recite a portion of the Quran each night and try to complete the whole reading during the 29 or 30 days. If not, but we read individually. So the whole Quran is read during the month of Ramadan. We read the whole Quran. So we have that, that spiritual side, spiritual purity of the mind, the soul, and we have the social side, which means that we, as we fast, we become more sensitive. To whom? <laughs> to those who are without, to those who are caught in, in, in dire straight situations. So it's a spiritual purity and it's a social purity there, uh, I would say. But it, it, the beauty of it is, going back, we are to complete the Quran during that time. One thirtieth each day, which will give us 30 thirtieths, and we'll complete the whole reading. And it's very spiritually enlightened. There is so much here. I, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm bursting. Mm. If I can just pluck a couple of ideas out. Both of you mentioned words. You mentioned Reverend, the word, and you mentioned, Imam, the words. And one of the spiritual practices I think, I suspect we all have, is a single word is enough to light a fire. Mm-hmm. That that sometimes, you know, we talked about, you don't read it like a magazine or a book or something like that, but sometimes, you know, when we talk about studying, studying a single word biblically mm-hmm. can be enough to elevate our soul yes. to dimensions that otherwise we may never realize in our life. And the other thing we didn't touch upon, but we have to make a point of having a conversation about this between the three of us, is the division and the uniting of the body and the soul, how they compare and how they differ. Say more about that? What is a spiritual discipline? Yeah. And do we do we in fact count them as separate? Does I mean, when the Imam was talking about Ramadan and purifying the soul by purifying the body, by not eating, mm-hmm. you know, how are those two connected or disconnected? Well, you, you, you have an excellent point there because you mentioned something earlier about the breath of life and becoming a living soul. So we see that that soul, we're more alive in our soul than we are in our body. Our body has to be fed. But sometimes it's those appetites that are pushed to extremes that we need to discipline. The normal appetites we can deal with, but the extremes that sometimes the culture pushes us, you know, to consume materially, uh, to go after material things. We need that spiritual discipline, and that's where that come, that holistic piece comes, or it becomes holistic. You know, we work with the spiritual side to discipline uh, the material side. You know what Omar said. It echoes exactly when we I knew we were going to talk about spiritual disciplines. Yeah, I go straight to my bookcase and I pull out a, a book by Henry Nowen, Roman Catholic writer and, and priest, from his book, The Only Necessary Thing. And I always think about it. And when he describes spiritual disciplines, he says, to be is to desire. And some of our desires are helpful and some of them are chaotic and some of them 
All of them keep us looking, and some of us lead us to look for God. And then he said, spiritual disciplines are not ways to eradicate all our desires, but ways to order them Mm -hmm. so that they can serve one another and together serve God. And I've always thought that's the purpose. It's not to beat yourself into submission. It is to order yourself so that we are able to know God, to love God, and to serve God. As far as body and soul, I would say probably the the Christian tradition is at times frustratingly much more platonic than it is rooted in the Hebrew understanding of body and soul being one. So too often we've split those two, and a lot of the Christian tradition is still struggling with that unnatural and and unbiblical split that somehow it's a bad body and a Holy Spirit or vice versa. So, yeah, I, 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 I see it, I hear the language, and I understand that that is not the way Scripture talks about us, that we are a unit. And in the Christian tradition, we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, meaning it is not body-soul split, but that somehow in resurrection those two are redeemed and, and made new, so it's a whole unit. But I can say that all I want, and still people will talk uh you know, bad body, good Holy Spirit, uh, separate the two out. Well, there's a wonderful phrase that we all know, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. How do you do that? Do you just kind of like, I like Phil, he's my neighbor. I mean, is that what it's all about? I don't think so. <laughs> I think what it's all about is that is that we do good things with our body that benefits our neighbor, mm-hmm. whether it's giving food, whether it's feeding or whatever. So I would reckon that that is ample ammunition to say that the body can be a holy vessel and should be a holy vessel. I've been trying to say to our congregation, our faiths have to do with how we spend our time, our energy, our money, our influence. And in doing that, we must say our faith is a political force. It changes. It should change how we live. And our faith is not partisan, but our faith is political. It should affect how we spend our time, our energy, our money, where we spend our influence, how we divide up our week. And and those are political decisions. My decision to share a portion of my income is a political decision, how I choose to share it. And my faith says, share it with the least of these. We talked about that earlier. Welcome the immigrant, the stranger, the orphan, the widow. Those are political acts. Not partisan, but political. Is that all we can do today? <laughs> I, I would love to, yeah, I think so. But I would love to expand on this. I mean, I think I think it deserves more attention mm-hmm. than what we gave it today. So maybe there's a part two. I think so. I want to take a minute to thank you, all of you who are listening, for joining us at Abraham's Table. This podcast is a labor of love, produced by us. Imam Omar Shahid, Rabbi Jonathan Case, and Reverend Ellen Fowler-Skidmore, with indispensable editing and technical guidance from Andy Hayworth, and with musical gifts shared with us by Kyle Lovett from his piece, Shofar Worship on Spotify. If you have questions or suggestions or comments you would like to share with us, you may email us at abrahamstablesc.com at gmail.com. That's 
Abraham's Table SC for South Carolina at gmail.com. From Columbia, South Carolina, we wish you God's peace. Assalamu alaikum, God's peace be on you. Shalom alaikum. May God's peace be upon us all. <laughs>